So if you're if you don't have the law gospel distinction, you are on your way to Rome, yeah. even if you don't know it. So you can be a Baptist evangelical, you know, Pentecostal receiving revelations, a powerful man of God, full of the Holy <laughs> Spirit. But if you're denying the law gospel distinction, you're you're you have taken two steps toward Rome. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at Pod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign up link or simply email us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Welcome everybody to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Nick Fulweiler and Peter Bell. We're doing something super exciting here in season two. We're interviewing top theologians and pastors on topics that they have extensive research and knowledge on based on the Reformed Church. And today we have uh, Dr. R. Scott Clark. Uh, we're going to be talking about the history of the Reformation. Um, it'll be delivered in a concise way uh, and answering some of the most common questions both believers and non-believers have. I'll let Peter uh, formally introduce our guest. Yeah, so this is one of my professors. I had him last semester and the, the semester before. This is Dr. R. Scott Clark. He's the professor of church history and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's a minister of the church um, government kind of thing that I'm part of, the United Reformed Church. And he's been teaching at Westminster since 1997, served as academic dean for a little bit, taught at a couple campuses, lives in Escondido with his wife, Barbara, um, two children, got a bunch of books out on the history of Reformation. Uh, and he's got a blog out that I actually followed before my time at Westminster that, that brought me to Westminster, the Heidel blog. And I'm sure we'll, we'll reference some of that stuff as we go along. But we're super thankful to have you on, Dr. Clark. Welcome on to the podcast. Hi, guys. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming. Uh, it's an honor to have you. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll be just answer, asking some questions. You're definitely the meat and potatoes of this thing. So if you feel like you want to elaborate and just kind of the, the podium is all yours. Um, so I was going to ask the first question, what are the events – leading up to the Reformation, what year did it start, and why is Martin Luther attached to it? Well, the Reformation uh, is generally said to have begun in 1517. So that, that's our marking point. And uh, what led up to it was uh, about a thousand years of church history. So it, <laughs> it, it, and I, obviously I can't summarize that, but what or cover all that, I can summarize it briefly by saying that what happened leading up to the Reformation is that the church gradually, I think for reasons um, contra the way the story is sometimes told, I, I think for 
the church was generally well-intentioned. The church made some fairly significant mistakes uh, early on and, and at different times through the Middle Ages as well. The church faced uh, external and internal threats, and, and those threats claimed to have insights into uh, God's truth, and uh, they claimed to have interpretations of Scripture uh, that the uh, most of the church rejected. And so one way to sort of protect the faith and protect the church was to say, well, no, uh, we have, for example, an unwritten apostolic tradition. And, and that was an argument that was made in the late 4th century, so in the late 300s. And, and that way of thinking uh, developed. And the church, in order to protect the faith, uh, defend the faith, began to confer upon itself more and more authority. Um, now, And that took a very long time to, to happen. So we shouldn't think, and one of the mistakes I think that a lot of American evangelicals make is that they, they think, well, the, you know, the apostolic church was right, the New Testament was right, and there's some good things in the church right after the apostles, but it goes south pretty quickly, and we'll just ignore everything that happened until the Reformation. So, so the medieval church, um, in order to protect the church and the, the truth and the scriptures, which they were reading, by the way, on which they were commenting, over which they were praying. Sometimes people think, well, nobody read the Bible and nobody prayed. And that's, that's simply not true. Um, but they, they read the Bible um, in a certain way, we, and we'll, have to, we'll come back to that in, in a minute. So they began to appeal to extra-biblical, extra-canonical revelation as a way of protecting the faith and defending the faith. So that was a problem. Um, and then uh, the church also increasingly began to worry uh, that, you know, we had to find a way to make Christians behave themselves. We had to find a way to make Christians be good. And so to do that, um, they increasingly set up a system whereby they said, well, God has been gracious. He has given grace and he's endowed the church with grace. And the church dispenses that grace like medicine, and that was the language that they used. They used um, the, the they used that category. They used that language of medicine, they, and they began to appeal to the the parable of the good Samaritan, and they they began to say, "Well, we are the people. We are the man lying on the side of the the road, and so we need a good Samaritan, and that's Jesus, and uh, we need him to bandage us up. But we need to do our part." And so they set up a doctrine of salvation that was by grace which they thought of as a medicine with which we're infused, right? So we're all going to line up and get uh, injections of, of a COVID vaccine, right? That's an infusion. That's what that is. Um, not one that I'm looking forward to and not one that I like, but it, <laughs> um, I'm, I guess they have a nose spray, so I'm excited about that. Maybe I heard that about one. that. So huh. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll use the nose spray all day long if it gets me from, from having a needle. But... Um, mm -hmm. So they, the church said, we, you need to be infused. And, and then the church gradually began to develop uh, the idea that, well, you know, the Lord gave us two sacraments. We recognize that. But we have these popular practices that we like. And uh, they, they, were, they came to be known as sacramentals. And gradually those sacramentals came to be regarded as sacraments. It took a very long time. And so uh, people should not assume, for example, that the ancient church had seven sacraments. Uh, she didn't. The, the, the system of seven sacraments was not officially recognized until the 13th century. 
That's the 1200s, the late 1200s, and, and, and it really only began to be recognized then. So the ancient church only had two sacraments. The early medieval church only had two sacraments. But the church said, well, listen, these sacraments are ways we can infuse grace into people with which they can cooperate. And, um, and since they're on the hook to cooperate, then that gives them an incentive to be good because you have to be good as you cooperate with grace. And, then, and um, uh, so they, they said you're, you're justified because you're sanctified and you're sanctified by grace and cooperation with grace. So that whole system, so you have a... a you have the you've set up a unintentionally you've marginalized the bible the bible is not the final authority for faith and life anymore and you've set up a system whereby grace is important but you're not saved by grace alone and you're not saved through faith alone um, and faith isn't just trusting it's also obeying right so you can see where we're where we're coming so we don't have sola fide right uh, by faith alone uh, we don't have by grace alone and we don't have by scripture alone and all those things are developed over, you know, about a thousand years. So by the time you get to the 16th century, uh, the, the church had invented five sacraments and imposed those five sacraments. The church had marginalized the Bible. Uh, the church, in order to protect the Bible, said, well, we can't have people reading the Bible because that will lead to confusion and misunderstanding. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, Scripture is, is, uh, is lost in some ways. Wow. It's, it's not lost officially, and it's wow. not lost to the scholars, but it's sort of lost to the people. So uh, the, the Refor Reformation happened because, um, and, and, and this again takes a, a while to explain, and, and Peter knows it takes me about, about six weeks to tell this story. <laughs> yeah. I'm condensing this. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm condensing a lot of things here, but uh, there were people who raised questions. Well, you know, maybe things are not the way we thought they were. And uh, they, they began to kind of, in different ways, for different reasons, to go back to the Bible. Now, this is not the people, but these are scholars saying, you know, we need to look at Scripture again. So that began to happen. And then there were people saying, you know, we haven't really accounted for how sinful we are. And, and there were theologians who were downplaying uh, the effect of sin and the, the, uh, the destruction that sin uh, did to humanity in the fall. And uh, so there was a reaction. And some of those theologians who reacted said, no, uh, we agree with Paul. We agree with, with Augustine that we are really, really sinful. And um, uh, we, um, we need to account for that. And, and uh, we need grace. We are totally dependent upon grace. So it's against that background that Martin Luther said, uh, you know, Martin Luther came under the influence of some of those ideas, and he's reading Augustine, he's lecturing through the Psalms, and as he does that, he recovers uh, Augustine's doctrine of original sin, that in Adam's fall, sinned we all, as the colonial Puritans put it, and that we're really dead in sins and trespasses. And then as he's lecturing through Romans, he sees, well, no, the basis for our justification and our salvation is not inside of us, that is our sanctification, it's outside of us. It's what Christ did, and it's credited to us. And then as he's lecturing through uh, Galatians and Hebrews, and then the Psalms again, he sees, no, faith is not um, my cooperation with grace. Faith is trusting, resting, leaning, receiving on Christ and, uh, and on what he's done for me. And, and, uh, and then finally, 
he recognizes, um, among the last things that he recognized was, no, Scripture is the final authority. And one of the other things he recognized along the way is that, you know what, one of the, we lost this notion in the medieval church that there are two kinds of words in Scripture, law and gospel, that the law says do this and live, and the gospel says Christ has done for you. And we lost track of that, and, and that's a really important distinction. So all those things together really made the Reformation. The, so sola scriptura, law and gospel, sola gratia, sola fide, um, you know, th those are the things that over a period of time, from 1513 to 1521, Luther gradually recovered those things and, and, and launched us, on a, the, the Protestant churches, on a completely different trajectory in some ways. Um, coming out of the medieval church, a child of the medieval church, connected to the medieval church, the Reformation didn't drop out of the sky like magic. The gospel wasn't hidden away in a, in a clay jar in the, in the Alps somewhere being guarded by uh, an Italian sect, which is a story that people tell. Uh, that, that simply isn't true. Um, the, the gospel was recovered through hard work uh, by the, you know, we could, obviously we have to credit the providence of God. Um, and, and there were some historical things that made it possible for us to, to uh, relearn these things. Mm. Yeah, that's, I remember yeah, taking your class in ancient church and then Medref. And previously being told that the, the Reformation was, oh, let's go back to the Bible. Nobody's been reading this for a thousand years. But yeah. it was not a not no reading, just an improper reading, not seeing yeah. the fullness, not seeing justification. But that, was, that was helpful for me, learning that stuff. And there were people read the Bible under the influence of some assumptions, right? Yeah. One of those assumptions was God can only say that we're righteous if we are intrinsically righteous. That was a big assumption. And that's the assumption that Romanists make today. Uh, that's the assumption that a lot of evangelicals make today. Yeah. So they don't really understand the, the notion of an alien righteousness, that is Christ's righteousness is outside of us. It's credited to us. And so the medieval church came to say, well, you're justified because you're sanctified. And the Reformation church said, no, you're sanctified because you're justified. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we reversed those order, that order, and that's Paul's order. That was the, generally the way the ancient church talked about it, not yeah. universally. Um, and we came to, to see the medieval church for, for understandable reasons, right? The, again, under, the medieval church was trying to encourage Christians to behave themselves, to be obedient, uh, to live godly lives, and so forth. And, so, and, and for just the same reasons that evangelicals oftentimes uh, put people back under the law, right, in order to get them to be good. And they say, well, yes, Jesus died to make salvation for those who, who do their part. Or they're very well-known evangelicals who say, well, yes, you're justified now by grace alone through faith alone, but you're finally saved through faithfulness or saved through your good works, they even say. Um, and so it's the very same impulse. They say that because they want people to be obedient. They want to create an incentive for them to obey because they don't understand and don't believe in the gospel mystery of justification or the gospel mystery of salvation. God didn't save the Israelites because they cooperated with grace. He saved sinful, helpless Israelites. And then he said, uh, now, because I've saved you, here's what I expect of you as a consequence. And I want you to live in the grace in which I've saved you, uh, you know, by grace alone, through faith alone. And yeah. that, that notion really is lost for a lot of evangelicals. 
Yeah, that was a concise, I guess, as much as you can make it, 15-minute history lesson for, I think, a lot of people who have not heard that historical perspective, which I, mean, I think is, is in the sources that we've read. It was definitely needed, though. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was helpful. That was helpful for me, and I think that'll be helpful for a lot of people who have not heard this stuff before or gone into these sources or read this stuff or um, have this education, but 15-minute crash course on the, the Reformation of Meadowville Church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, actually, something I wrote down that I, as you were talking that kind of popped out is uh, we're, a lot of churches are kind of reverting back to that yeah. mistake that the early um, church did to create the Reformation. So are we in a second wave of the Reformation? Or in other words, are we in the need of the Reformation just as well in a live, it's just as well and alive today as it was when it first came out? Well, I, I think so. What, you know, whether we're in a wave or not, I don't know. There, there's always um, a need to recover uh, the Reformation. That's the uh, original meaning, the original sense of Semper Reformanda, if you've ever heard that phrase, right? Ecclesia Reformata. Uh, Semper always reforming. Refor- yeah, Semper Reformanda. So the church reformed, always reforming. And what people uh, mean by that most of the time is that while the Reformation was okay, but uh, uh, it didn't go far enough and we need to go farther. And, mm. and, and what it often means is we need to fix the Reformation because it, it didn't get some things right. And that usually comes down to things like baptism or mm. the Pentecostal gifts or something like that. To which I say, um, nonsense and poppycock. <laughs> the Reformation Church got it right. The Reformation Church was biblical on these things. And uh, in fact, the Reformation Church faced all these things uh, that, that people propose as, um, you know, parts of a new Reformation, right? We faced the arguments over baptism in the 16th century, and, and there's nothing new. You can see Zwingli responding to the arguments of the Baptists in 1524, right? The yeah. very same arguments. Uh, now, they weren't Baptists, then they were Anabaptists, but they're the same arguments. Um, there were Pentecostals. The early Anabaptists were also Pentecostals. People don't always know that. And we faced those no- that argument that, well, you know, you guys are just stuck to the Bible, but we have direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. And, and all the, the magisterial Protestants, the Lutheran and Reformed Protestants, rejected those notions. Um, they said, no, uh, this idea of extra-biblical revelation is part of what got us into trouble in the first place. Yeah. which is why uh, we reject it, and the scriptures are sufficient. That's what it means to say sola scriptura. So <clears throat> in as much as we've lost track of the sufficiency of scripture, right, um, so that leading evangelicals are counseling people to look for revelation apart from scripture. And um, I, I noticed, for example, um, the number one book, I think, in uh, – Calvinism, I think, was the category on Amazon. I don't even know how I saw this. One thing led to another. And it was Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Wayne is convinced that he receives extra-canonical revelations. He says they're not canonical, but they're direct revelations from Scripture. And uh, and yet his case for that is exceeding weak. It's beyond weak. And, um, And it subverts the sufficiency of scripture if scripture is sufficient then you i don't need the holy spirit to tell me to sell a car or not sell a car i make a prudential judgment i don't need a direct revelation 
do I take this job or do I not take this job? I don't need a direct revelation to make that decision. Um, that's a matter of liberty and wisdom, and the evangelicals have, have lost track of that. And uh, w one of the things I've been thinking about lately is nature and grace, because evangelicals don't have any place for nature. They only have grace. They only have redemption. Grace wipes out everything. They don't have a place for creation. But anyway, that, that maybe that's another episode. So in as much as we, we're losing track of the doctrine of, of justification by grace alone through faith alone, in as much as we're losing track of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, uh, in as much as we're losing track of the sufficiency of Scripture, right, sola scriptura, then yeah, we, we are always needing to, to get back to the Reformation, which was the original meaning of that phrase, semper reformanda. Um, so if, if, if the listener wants to read more about that, there's an article online. It's on the Heidel blog, heidelblog.net. Uh, it's also on the Ligonier website, always abusing semper reformanda. And I explained the history of that phrase. There's, Mike Horton wrote a great essay in a book um, titled Always Reformed. And uh, he explained, he did some of the same things and gave some of the same explanations of the history and meaning of that, of that phrase. So Yeah, when we'll I, link when that I, up to the podcast too so people can read that. So when I tell you these things, I'm not just making them up. I mean, these are based on, on actual research. And I, and I say that because these are things that before I did the research, I didn't know. And these are things that I'm confident that a lot of folks don't know because they hear these slogans invoked and, and basically abused. So. Mm. So that, <clears throat> that painting of the picture of Martin Luther uh, posting the document on the door back in that October 31st day in the 16th century is the Reformation that people popularly see, right? And yeah. there's a funny Reformed meme out there that says, I don't have a problem with this door. I'm not trying to fix your door. I'm trying to fix your theology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, there's real doubt as to whether uh, Luther ever actually nailed those 95 theses. And again, there's, a, there's an article on that right on the homepage of the Heidel blog, 95 theses, did Luther nail or mail them or both? And I walked through the, the, the debate. Um, so he may not even, he may have. Or he may not have. I really don't have an opinion anymore. Um, um, I don't. I don't know, and I don't think most people know. I don't think we can know, frankly. But um, yeah, there's a lot more to the Reformation than complaining about the sale of indulgences. I mean, yeah. most people who think that the Reformation is about 1517, October 31, 1517, the the 95 Theses, don't even know what the 95 Theses are. They don't know what indulgences are. Um, and they're praying for their praying to their dead grandmother. I mean, <laughs> it's like, uh, <clears throat> yeah, or whatever. So, indulgences were the sale of a, of a kind of get out of purgatory uh, slip, right? Get out of yeah. jail, get out of purgatory. So, purgatory is where you're said to go in between uh, uh, after you die, but but before Jesus returns, and you're you're sort of or or before you are released and. Or, allowed to go to heaven. So <clears throat> the system developed that you, uh, you, you're baptized, and uh, this, is not, this is not really the doctrine, I don't think, of the ancient church, but it came to be thought that you are, at least not by everyone in the ancient church, um, you're baptized and your sins are wiped away. But then as life goes on, you accumulate sins, and so you go to confession. 
and the priest assigns you penance, right? Uh, so you confess your sins, and he says, now go do these acts of penance, whatever they may be, acts of charity, make a donation uh, you know, to the church, or you know, say a certain number of, uh, of, say the Lord's Prayer a certain number of times, or if you get late enough, say a certain number of Hail Marys. And uh, those are acts of penance. And, and of course, you don't do your acts of penance, right, uh, completely, or maybe not at all. So your, your uh, punishments kind of pile up. Well, they have to be paid. Those punishments, these are like parking tickets. They have to be paid. Eventually, mm -hmm. you're, you're, they're going to put a boot on your car if you don't pay the tickets. So uh, in this case, uh, you're going to have to do time in purgatory. So everybody, it came to be thought, by the time you get to the 16th century, it came to be uh, assumed and thought and, and believed that everybody pretty much was going to do a lot of time in purgatory. And by a lot, I mean hundreds of thousands of years. You've got to pay for all these sins. And, and you're gonna, literally, you're, 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 uh, you're paying for them, you're satisfying for them, and, and you're, they're being burned off. And um, then eventually you get released, right? And so you, it's like uh, you did your time and you get out of jail and you, and you do eventually get to go to heaven. Uh, and so the church said, well, if you go on a crusade, for example, to recover the Holy Lands, uh, we'll give you a, a plenary indulgence. All your time in purgatory is wiped out if you, if you go on or if you pay for a, a, a crusade. And they began to add to the list of things that you could do that counted as a plenary indulgence. And, and when she wanted to raise money, she said, well, look, if you make a donation to the church, then you get a plenary indulgence. And, uh, and that's, so that was the sale of indulgences. And, and there was a guy going around Germany, Tetzel, and who, who is saying things like, when the coin in the coffer clinks, the soul from purgatory springs. And uh, he was, so he was raising money, and he would plead with people. Uh, he, wasn't, he didn't do it actually in Wittenberg, but he did it in areas around Wittenberg, and, and uh, around that, that sort of uh, governmental district. Right? There's no Germany exactly, but uh, if you think there's a sort of state, as we would think in the United States, there's a state. So I'm in, uh, if, you're, if you think about being in Nebraska, you've got Iowa to the east and uh, Colorado to the west. And, and so you've, um, he was in the surrounding states doing this. And, and it, people were going and, and they were paying money and then they would come back and they, and they would come to confession and they would show Luther their certificate, right? Well, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I paid, I've got a certificate. I don't have to do anything, you know, Father Martin. You, you, you sign all the penances you want, but I've got a certificate. I paid for it. And um, so Luther thought this was pretty disgusting. And um, so th this is why he complains about the sale of indulgences. And people were making big money off the sale of indulgences. The church was making big money off the sale of indulgences. And by the way, people think that the sale of indulgences went away right, that they just assume, well, Martin Luther complained about the sale of indulgences, and it must have gone away, and uh, they couldn't, you know, that's such a, a shameful thing to do. They couldn't possibly continue to, to do that. No, absolutely, she, she still sells indulgences. Um, she's shameless. Um, so if you, and again, um, if you look at that article, the 95 Theses, did Luther nail or mail them or both? So the church is still Rome. I mean, I don't, uh, that's what I mean here when I say the church, that Rome is still selling indulgences. Uh, and uh, I've, I've got that documented for you uh, at the bottom of the page um, at uh, heidelblog.net, the 95 Theses, did Luther nail or mail them? Or you could just go to heidelblog.net slash resources. And, there's a, and then on that page, 
there is a, a resource page on Roman Catholicism, and I have a whole um, pile of audio, video, resources, articles, a bibliography, and uh, one of the art. And there are several articles on indulgences. So uh, Rome is still uh, still selling indulgences, offering people. Uh, to get out of purgatory for a donation or if you walk through an arch or or what have you there, there's always something there's like man Wasn't there a tweet a little while ago yes yeah if you if you read i think at one time if you retweeted uh, yeah. there's an article on digital indulgences so they were trying to get romanists to retweet the pope yeah, I remember this. It's like 2017 was one that I saw. Yeah, something, something like that. So again, and you can see what they're doing, right? They're they're using they're setting up a works based incentive to get people to do things, right? So in Reformed theology, this is why we distinguish between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We say before the fall, God made a covenant with Adam in which He said, "Do this and live," and then after the fall, God made a covenant in which He said, "God." In effect, Christ shall do for you, right, looking forward. And uh, what you need to do is trust that, believe that, and, um, and he's going to fulfill the covenant of works for you. Rome doesn't make that distinction. So this is the law-gospel distinction. The covenant of works is law. The covenant of grace is gospel. And because Rome rejects that distinction, she, she muddles those two things, and people are always in Rome. You're always under a covenant of works. And lots of evangelicals do the same. And there, there are even some Reformed people, not Orthodox Reformed people, not people who are being faithful to the Scriptures as we confess them, but there are people who identify as Reformed, who, you know, people think of them as Reformed. Um, they're not, really, in a lot of ways, but that's how they market themselves. And they say the same thing, basically, right? They, they reject the distinction between law and gospel. And um, that's a basic distinction. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's fundamental to the Reformation. So that if you don't have it, you don't have the Protestant Reformation. Mm. So if you if you don't have the law gospel distinction, you are on your way to Rome, yeah. even if you don't know it. So you can be a Baptist evangelical, you know, Pentecostal receiving revelations, a powerful man of God, full of the Holy <laughs> Spirit. But if you're denying the law gospel distinction, you're you're you have taken two steps toward Rome, and, uh, and so I don't care what your what your sociology is. I don't care if you're holding a Bible in your hand, right? You, well, I can't be a Roman Catholic. Look, I've got a Bible in my left hand, and as my professor Dirk Bergsma says, I well, that's great. I just wish you would read it more, and, and read it and read it better. Um, yeah, so, yeah. You can see. I mean, I'm I'm sure listeners. Are thinking this too you can see how the the crucial law gospel distinction distinguishes justification and sanctification versus if you muddle them then you start thinking sanctification is my justification which is what you talked about in the roman catholic church and and lots of evangelicals struggle with assurance because they live in a system uh they live in a church a piety uh, they have a theology that says well god accepts me to the degree that i am holy and I'm not holy enough, and therefore God must not accept me, and therefore I'm full of doubt and fear. I get those emails on a regular basis. Hmm. And, uh, and my response to them is repent and believe in Jesus. He did it all. His work is sufficient. Uh, your work, you, the work that you do in, in Christ by grace is as a consequence of his saving work for you and the Spirit's saving work in you. Yeah. Right. 
so good works are necessary. They're necessary as fruit and evidence. And what, what happens is people are not satisfied with that, and they want to make good works do more than that. They want to make them more than fruit and evidence. And that's why you have people talking about a, a two-stage doctrine of justification or a two-stage doctrine of salvation. And, uh, and that's why that is so deadly, because it, it's not the gospel. Uh, if you say that, I'm well, I'm justified now, but I'll, I'll be finally saved through good works, they've, what they've really said, said is you're out on bail. Well, if you're out on bail or you're out on, you know, you're out on parole, you really haven't finished your, your sentence. I mean, probably bail is a better analogy, right? So you're temporarily out of jail, but you still have to, you still face adjudication. You're going to have to come back to court and appeal, you know, appear before the judge, and then you're going to be judged on the basis of your works. Mm. Well, that's not good news. Your works stink. <laughs> True. Right? Yeah. Your works are not good enough. And God doesn't lower his standard. Part of the trick the medieval church played was they said, and the Roman church still plays, is that they said, well, God lowers his standard. Mm -hmm. If you're in Christ, if you've been baptized, then you, um, God you know, will, will credit your best efforts with perfection. Uh, no, he won't. That's a lie. It's not true. Uh, Jesus didn't die to make salvation possible for those who do their part. Jesus died to accomplish salvation for his people. And he graciously gives salvation to his people. He didn't save the Israelites out of Egypt uh, because they did anything. They weren't sanctified. I mean, read Exodus. They're miserable. They're, they're yelling. They're, they're criticizing Moses. Why did you bring us out here to die? We would be better off eating leeks and onions and in Egypt, right? Uh, there, and, and God, and so does God say, well, you people clearly aren't sanctified enough. I'm not, I can't save you out of Egypt. You're terrible. I got to get a new people. <laughs> no, he saves those sinful people out of Egypt. Yeah. And, and it's by grace. So, so the whole thing, not just justification, but salvation, that is justification, sanctification, glorification. It's all by grace alone, through faith alone. And good works are nothing but faith, but, but um, fruit and evidence. And all the Protestant reformers said that. And today, that's a controversial thing to say. It's controversial among some reformed people who don't know the history of Christian theology and who don't understand the Reformation, don't know it very well, don't understand the medieval church, and, and don't know what we've said about salvation. Mm. So in other words, that outside of Christ, our works are nothing. And in Christ, they don't save you. Right. That's right. So in Christ, they give fruit and evidence, and outside of Christ, they do nothing. They condemn you. Mm. Yeah. They don't, they don't prepare you. They don't help you. They don't add to, to your uh, status before God. Uh, they're not the instrument of your salvation. They're not the basis of your salvation. They're not the instrument of your justification. They're not the basis of your justification. And that's true for Christians as well. They don't do anything to save you. They don't justify you. They're not the ground. They're not the instrument. They are fruit and evidence. And if, you're, if that makes you uncomfortable, then I have these words for you. I want you to listen very carefully. Repent and believe in Jesus, who is God the Son, who is perfectly righteous for all of his people, whose, whose life, obedience, death, and resurrection are completely sufficient for your justification, sanctification, and your glorification. If you're trying to add to them in any way or supplement faith with your good works, 
then then you clearly are not trusting in Christ alone. You are trusting in Christ and, and it doesn't matter how you finish that sentence. Anything you add is unbelief. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, jumping into the next question here, who are some other important people we should know about during the Reformation? Obviously, we talked about Martin Luther. Uh, are, are there any other key names yeah i think most evangelicals only know pretty much luther and maybe a little bit of calvin but other names that they should be introduced to well i mean there are a lot of important and interesting names that that people ought to know but honestly i would be thrilled if evangelicals would actually read luther Hmm. right they know his name but they've never read him and if so and and uh, peter can tell you one of the things that i do is make my students read luther because American Christians don't read Luther, and they need to read Luther. If there's anything we could use, it's a dose of Luther. So in a sense, I'm hesitant to answer that question because it just adds to the marginalization of Luther among evangelicals. Now, that, there are important people that, that are worth reading. Um, you know, in the 19th century, uh, Zwingli became really important, and I think he was important before that too. Um, and, uh, and I think Zwingli did some useful things, uh, important things. He helped us with covenant theology, for example. He's one of the early Reformed covenant theologians. He helped us deal with the, with the Anabaptists who were, you know, who, by the way, people, don't, people think, well, the Anabaptists, they were just radical Protestants. No, they were not. They were, they were radical anti-Protestants. They rejected the Reformation, root and branch. The Anabaptists were not Protestants. They didn't accept salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They didn't accept justification by grace alone through faith alone. They said, if you say that, you'll never be good enough. So they agreed with Rome on that. Um, And they didn't accept the the sufficiency of Scripture. That's an assumption. People just assume, well, you know, uh, I'm a, and I hear this all the time, I'm a Baptist and my roots are in the Anabaptists and we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, therefore they must have. Well, uh, that's really not true. And you're, that, that way of thinking makes all kinds of assumptions that are not true. So um, Zwingli is important for covenant theology. He's actually not very clear about salvation. He doesn't talk about it all that much. Uh, it, it didn't interest him as much as it did Luther. And he doesn't talk about justification. Um, he is uh, pretty good on sola scriptura right, on the uniqueness, finality of Scripture. But in some of his big debates where he had an opportunity to articulate the law-gospel distinction and justification by grace alone through faith alone, he just doesn't do it. So those are not things that really animated him the way they animated Luther or the way they animated Calvin. Um, so, I mean, Calvin is deeply infused with Luther. And um, so you can, in some ways, you can distinguish between those Protestants who were deeply influenced by Luther and those who were not. Um, so mm-hmm. Calvin is very much influenced by Luther and, and, and in some ways uh, wanted to um, continue, and wanted to reform in a sense or, or revise, maybe is a better way of putting it, some things that Luther said. But he fundamentally agreed with Luther on the supper, for example, that, it's, uh, that in the supper we are fed by the body and blood of Christ. He didn't agree with Luther as to how that happens. He said it happens by the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, and he wouldn't be more specific. Uh, Zwingli, I agree with the traditional view that Zwingli um, really didn't think that in the supper we are fed by the body and blood of Christ, that for Zwingli the supper is mostly a memory. 
And that really describes most American evangelicals. Mm. So in some ways, I'm reluctant to have American evangelicals reading Zwingli because he just reinforces some of their worst tendencies. A lot of the so-called young, restless, and reformed guys are really Zwinglians. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and they don't know it. They haven't really engaged Zwingli. Yeah. So, um, and, and I think, frankly, if you look at Zwingli's successor, Heinrich Bullinger, he's much better than Zwingli. And so Bullinger is a guy that's worth reading. Um, and uh, Peter Martyr Vermeule, who worked alongside Bullinger, is a, is a terrific voice, uh, very solid, very edifying, uh, who, who ought to be read. Uh, he's an Italian reformer. Um, one of my favorites is a guy who's difficult to read because there's not much in English. Johannes Oikolampadius is an early reformed theologian about the same age as, as Luther. And, um, and he was working out covenant theology very early on, 1523, 1524. Uh, uh, Philip Melanchthon is an essential part of the Protestant Reformation. He wrote the first summary of Protestant theology in his commonplaces, which he published in 1521 and then revised over the years. He wrote the Augsburg Confession in 1530 and then revised in, uh, in 1540 or 41. So uh, there are lots of important uh, voices in the Reformation besides Luther. Um, and uh, you, we could talk about first-generation Protestants, second-generation Protestants. But those would be some of the major figures, uh, you know, Zwingli, uh, Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, uh, Bootser. Uh, um, I guess I shouldn't uh, forget uh, Bootser. He uh, is a big influence. He was deeply influenced by Luther. He got the doctrine of justification. He got the distinction between law and gospel. I think he had a high view of the of the supper, right? So he's not a, a Zwinglian exactly. Um, he it was through hearing Luther at a disputation that he became a Protestant. So he 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 appreciated Luther very deeply. Um, his, uh, Martin Bootser, he, uh, he was a prolific writer. We don't have much of his stuff in English. What we do have in English, frankly, isn't very edifying. Um, the translators made some odd choices. It was an important text, but there are a lot of things that they could have translated that, he, that they haven't uh, done. Um, wrote a massive commentary on Romans that nobody's ever read. Very few people have ever read. Um, so it, uh, Bootser is an important voice. Uh, he influenced Calvin. So when you're reading Calvin, if you're reading him carefully, you're getting Bootser, you're getting Luther. In some ways, he kind of summarizes the, I, I, arguably the best of the first generation Protestant reformers. So mm. I, I do think um, American evangelicals would do well. For example, uh, the, the short, Calvin's short treatise on the Lord's Supper is a marvelous thing. And if you were to read that and invite uh, Calvin into your heart, you know, <laughs> uh, to, to really embrace that, that summary, his short treatise. And uh, I've got, I posted it online. It's widely available, but you can find it at rscottclark.org. And I, I encourage people to read. It's very edifying. Uh, you'll, you'll be encouraged by it. You'll be glad you read it. Very Christ-centered, very uh, uplifting. Um, and then there are lots of second-generation guys that I could talk about that are, are, are great as well. Yeah, that was uh, – your class is the first one I'd actually ever read Luther, his the selected shorter writings of, or the basic theological writings of Luther and then a lot of Calvin, Oikolampadius, Heidegger – or not Heidegger. Um, yeah, that was, that was enlightening for me too. So, I, yeah, I would say, yeah, before you read all those other guys – Start with Luther too, and then start reading other guys after and, Luther. 
And just remember that there's an early Luther and a later Luther. So if yeah, you read right. Luther before 1521, he's in process. If you read Luther after 1521, he's, he's on his way to becoming a mature Protestant. So if yeah. you read, for example, you say, well, what should I read of Luther's? Well, you know, his large catechism is, uh, is great. Um, his small catechism is, is good. Uh, his uh, commentary on Galatians from, I, I don't know, 1535 or 36, if you find that commentary on Galatians, that will change your life. Hmm. That is a great book. And I think all American evangelicals should read that. Well, all American evangelicals should read the book of Galatians for one thing. <laughs> start with that. Yeah. So let's start with the word of God and let the apostle Paul correct you and, and help you because there's a good chance that if you're listening to this podcast, you actually agree with the Judaizers rather than Paul. And then secondly, read Luther because he will take you by the hand and help you see uh, how that you are actually attempting to present yourself to God on the basis of your works. Mm. And he will lead you back to Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and the imputation of his righteousness and, and his grace, his free grace, that God freely accepts sinners. Mm. Uh, if, that, if we were possessed by that, I think that would change a, a lot of things. Um, mm. And then, and then uh, you know, the, one of the things that we don't ever talk about when we, when we uh, do Reformation stuff once a year is that these guys were all part of, of a visible institutional church. And they took the visible institutional church really seriously. And again, American evangelicals just don't. What matters to them is their personal, private walk with the Lord. And church is like a rally, you know. It's a, um, you know, it, it, um, yeah, I, the, I, like, a, like a pep rally that you go to before a football game. Yeah. And, uh, and that's not at all how the Protestant reformers thought. They, they thought, and they all agreed on this, that God the Holy Spirit operates through the preaching of the gospel to bring uh, God's elect to new life and true faith. And uh, the Holy Spirit grants new life to people as they're hearing the, the gospel preached by a minister. And then he strengthens that faith as they receive the Lord's Supper. And that their baptism is not a testimony uh, to what, uh, they have done, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, made a decision, but it's a, it's a testimony to what Christ has done for them. And it's a seal, a promise of what is true for everyone who believes in Jesus. And by the way, every single one of the, of the Protestants, they all baptize babies because they believe that that's what the Word of God teaches. Hmm. Yeah. So that was... maybe, maybe they were all wrong, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but, the, but, but you've got to prove that. You can't just assume that. And, and I, I, uh, I've read their arguments, and they're, they're pretty good arguments. And if you haven't ever read their arguments, then you really aren't prepared to engage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll link some of that stuff to the Galatians commentary, all that. I, I got a clarification question, just so yeah. I can get my mind right. Um, is the Reformation getting the church back to... Um, the early Christian church pre-Catholic? Like, in other words, the period of time of the first Pentecost to the beginning of the Catholic church, there was a period of time. Is that really the motivation of the Reformation to getting back before the Catholic church? Well, there's a bad assumption in the question. Okay. And the assumption is that that the church, you know, that the medieval church was the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. And that, and that, as if that's not ours. Mm. And that's a bad assumption. 
Mm-hmm. No, I, and so what I'm trying to say is, no, there's no, the, the Roman church doesn't really exist until the high to late medieval period. And even then, there's a way in which what, a lot of what we know of as Roman Catholicism doesn't exist until the 16th century. Yeah, so you, can't, you can't just assume that, well, everything before the Reformation or um, most of it is Roman Catholic, and therefore it's kind of naughty, dirty, off limits, and we got to get, um, that's, they, they, the Protestant reformers didn't think that way. They thought of the medieval church as their church and as a church that had become corrupted and needed to be returned to the word of God and reformed, reconstituted according to the word of God. So, so to answer your question, you know, having challenged the assumption, there's a sense in which they did want to get back to the early post-apostolic church and the apostolic church, but they didn't want to do it as if church history never happened mm, okay. which is what what modern and particularly again i know i'm keep picking on american evangelicals but there's a reason for that uh the, the modern and particularly american evangelicals think about trying to get back to a kind of magically pure church before everything went south and that's just not possible it, uh, so your little house church that you're going to, and you think, well, this is the end, and the leader is getting direct revelations from the Lord, and we're rolling on the floors, and we're singing uh, Sloppy Wet Kiss and Shine Jesus Shine, and that's the early ancient apostolic church. Nonsense. It, it was never like that. And if you, if you did that in the second century, they would throw you out. It didn't happen. I know because I know what they did in worship. And, and uh, in fact, we know more about what happened in second century worship than we do really in third century worship in some respects. Second and fourth are the centuries we know the most about. So, mm-hmm. so that, but that's a, widely assume, that's a widely held assumption, right? And uh, you know where it comes from? It comes from German liberals at the turn of the 20th century. Before the 20th century, but particularly around the turn of the 20th century, that notion that the ancient church was ungoverned, unstructured, uh, centered around a message, uh, didn't have any dogmas, didn't you know, didn't have any offices, and um, and that all developed later. Uh, that's just not true. The and and if you read the, the if you read the sources of the second century, you'll see that it's not true. One of the very earliest documents of the early second century church is what we would today call a church order. It was written, and we it's dated to about 114, AD 114. That's really early. And it's an order about how things are going to be done in the church. That's structure. And there were offices. And there was an order of worship and a way to baptize. Right, they actually talk about how the supper should be observed and how baptism should be observed. By the way, and th- those are the only two sacraments that, that are mentioned because those are the only two sacraments that existed. Mm. So they, but they did use the sacraments. And most American evangelicals, you say, well, what's at the center of your Christian life? And they'd say, well, it's my private time with the Lord. You ask mm. the the historic Christian church, what is at the center of your Christian life? They'd say it's the public gathering for worship. And not a therapeutic Zen experience where you sing scripture courses for 40 minutes and you, you, you enter into a state of bliss. Nobody knows anything about that until the 19th century. That is a 19th century development and really a mid to late 19th century development. And even then, 
we've done things in the t- late 20th and early 21st centuries that that would scandalize the the you know the smarmiest revivalists in the 19th century they would look at us and say that's crazy you can't do that we wouldn't do that right wednesday night meetings where they plan the chord changes the chord progressions to help people achieve the right kind of emotional experience that whole business goes back to the 19th century yeah i've been a part of that too i've seen it it no i i know that yeah i know you've been there and i know it happens right so and and that has nothing to do with historic christianity yeah i th- i think that helps answer something that i had in mind is uh the apostles creed mentions the catholic church and we can we can recite that and it, it just church. it just means ecumenical universal it has nothing to do with rome there was right. no roman catholic church until the high middle ages and the apostles creed begins to be formulated um, uh, very early on so that by 150 AD 150 there is a rule a known rule of faith so that you see the bones of what becomes the the uh, apost- the uh, the apostles creed the apostles of course obviously didn't write it and uh, but people are talking about the catholic church lowercase c meaning the universal church this is what all Christians believe. So the 12 articles are, are basically uh, already coming together in the middle of the second century. And uh, it's repeated again in Irenaeus in the 170s. And uh, Tertullian uh, you know, repeats it. And so gradually it takes form. And by the middle of the fourth century, the pretty much what we know as the Apostles' Creed is together. And yeah, we, we say it because we're a part of that. I'm sorry for cutting you off, but that is that that's where you were headed. Exactly. Right? It was. We say it because we're a part of that. We're not saying, and we don't have to cross our fingers, because it's not like, well, it really refers to the Roman Catholic Church, but we say it because it's kind of cool and kind of ancient, and, and uh, you know, we, we kind of want to feel, no, that's not what's happening at all. That is, those are our people. We are a part of that, and they are a part of us. And Rome... Uh, Rome is a specific phenomenon. Romanism is a specific, a specific phenomenon that really began to take shape very late in the history of the church. So here's what you have to think. When the Reformation happened, it was mostly rebelling against things that were no farther away from them than Jonathan Edwards is from us. Hmm. They were not rebelling against the second century or the third century or, the, or, or necessarily the fourth century. They were mostly rebelling against developments um, that, had, that were very late. Now, there are qualifications to that. There were things that developed early on that, that turned out badly. And we said, you know what, that was a, uh, that was a mistake. Uh, you know, one of the things, so how did we get seven sacraments? Well, the, we didn't adhere to scripture as the rule of Christian faith and, and Christian life. We said, you know, we like X, you know, and the, so they would add to the sacraments. They elaborated on the, on the two sacraments and uh, the, there were, there were popular practices and, uh, and nobody said, Hey, you know what? Those practices are not authorized by the word of God. They're not commanded by the word of God. Therefore we may not do them. And because we didn't take that position, 
they grew up eventually into sacraments and were eventually recognized as sacraments. So we're doing the very same thing. The altar call is a false sacrament that was invented in the 19th century. And people just assume, well, this is a thing that we've always done. No, it isn't a thing we've always done. Uh, singing for 40 minutes till you get blissed out, that's a thing that was invented uh, basically in the 1970s by Jesus people, right? The hippies, the hippie baby boomers on the beaches in Southern California. Yeah, I've just watched that documentary too on Calvary Chapel. Is it? I've, what is it? Oh, I've, I'll send it to you, but it's, it's about two hours long and it kind of goes through that movement. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, Chuck Smith, again, trying to reach the baby boomer hippies and, you know, uh, on the beaches of um, Orange County, uh, you know, popularized, develops a kind of uh, hope, uh, what do I want to say, uh, folk pop music for Christians. And, and you know what? I, I used to play that stuff on the radio in the early days of Jesus music. Uh, played Chuck Gerard all the time. And, and Maranatha with a, was a Maranatha Records, that was a staple in our music library at the radio station. Um, so, I, you know, I get it. I was right there when all that stuff was starting. Um, yeah, one of, the, one of the very earliest contemporary Christian radio stations. So I'm not talking about this stuff only from the outside. Oh, he's just some mean, cranky reform guy and hates everything. No, <laughs> I was in there. I came to faith in a, in a quasi-charismatic quasi-fundamentalist, evangelical Southern Baptist congregation. And so I lived through all of this stuff. And I know what it, I, I saw what sitting around waiting for still, stall, still small voices and revelations from the Lord. I saw what that did to people's theology, piety, and practice. Uh, I saw what making this, the, the quiet time into a, you know, there are two great sacraments in evangelicalism, the quiet time and the altar call. And now I guess the you know, what people call worship, the, the scripture choruses. Now they got three sacraments. You say, well, how did the medieval church ever get so corrupt? Well, look in the mirror. You're doing it. You're doing it right now exactly for the very same reasons, and you're doing it a lot faster than the, than the ancient church or medieval church did it. You're doing it the same way for the same reasons, the very same thing. So that in, in 100 years, we're going to have another five false sacraments. And you're gonna and you and we dare shake our finger at the medieval church? No, shame on us, not shame on them, especially since we have the Protestant Reformation and they didn't. Oh, I'm I'm nailing my own ninety-five theses today. <laughs> <laughs> um was the Lutheran church obviously from Martin Luther, was that kind of like the first Protestant church out of the Reformation or how did that work? Because I feel like the Lutheran church feels like Catholic light to me. Sure. Well, yeah, that's a long story. The, the very short version of that story is that there is no such thing as a Lutheran church or a Reformed church. Uh, early on, we're all evangelical in the original sense of that word. And it just meant gospel. So to be an evangelical in the 16th century is to be a gospel person. It is to hold to justification by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, scripture is the final authority for faith and life. And so, yeah, it's, the Reformation really starts with Luther, and it spreads. It spreads to uh, Switzerland, right, to Zurich, and then to uh, Geneva and Basel and other places. Um, and it, it spreads all, all, all over Europe and uh, Central Europe and and to some degree, Southern Europe, although it gets squashed there, mostly in Italy and Spain, it doesn't do very well. Um, so 
there, yeah, we have to be careful about reading back into the early Reformation, the kind of denominational divisions that we know. So Calvin doesn't really think of Luther as belonging to another church. He thinks of himself as being in the same church with Luther. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they, we, they recognize there were geographic differences. Now, to be sure, the Lutherans, by the time you get to the 1540s, well, the 1530s, they're starting to get really cranky with the Zwinglians, and 1520s even. So there's a real tension between Zwingli and, and the, the Zurichers and the Germans, right? And so they, the Germans call them sacramentarians because they think the sacrament's about their remembering. Sacramentum is an oath and a remembering. Oh, our, our doing, our oath-taking. And um, so there's a division there. And uh, gradually, the Lutheran Church develops as a distinct, self-conscious group through the 1540s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And so you have, you know, in the 1530s already, you have distinct confessions, the Augsburg Confession. But Reformed people sign the Augsburg and then there are different versions of the Augsburg, and, and the Reformed, ver- Reformed people are more likely to sign the later version, the, the revised version, than the unrevised. But by the time you get to 1580, you have now uh, distinct bodies, distinct confessions, and you have a clearly delineated Lutheran church with a, with a Lutheran approach to theology, piety, and practice. You have Reformed churches that are clearly delineated. They have their own confessions, their own theology, piety, and practice. They're organically related, but they are distinct. But that, that whole process takes about 50 years to, mm. to take place. Today, what you see in Lutheran churches varies. You have mainline Lutheran churches that are liberal. You have conservative Lutheran churches that uh, are partly confessional, partly evangelical. If you're looking at the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, three, about three million people, uh, uh, probably a minority of which are really confessional anymore. They're otherwise probably broadly evangelical. Wisconsin Synod Lutherans are more confessional. Lutheran Brethren tend to be more confessional um, or Lutheran Brotherhood. So there, it, it depends uh, where you're looking. So yeah, there's been a move among Lutherans to kind of do worship services that look less like Americans, less like evangelicals, and more like um, what they think of as traditional uh, worship. And yes, from an evangelical point of view, that can look kind of Romanizing. Um, and it, it varies. Um, I've heard, I, I've seen great services and really terrific uh, gospel preaching in uh, confessional Lutheran churches. And I've seen services that I thought, well, I really have no idea what's going on here. And, and there's not much, there's some gospel, but there's a, um, it looked to use an Anglican category, it looked almost Anglo-Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, uh, you know, and that, the, the Reformation of worship was one of the areas where the Reformed really tried to uh, advance the Reformation or mature the Reformation or uh, however you want to put it. And so the Lutherans adopted a principle that said, we can do, and the Anglicans also adopted this principle, and this is the principle that most American evangelicals have adopted, we can do whatever is not forbidden. Hmm. We can do whatever is not forbidden. And Calvin and the Reformed articulated a different principle. They said, we can only do in worship what God has commanded. And so that led the Reformed churches to adopt a fairly simple approach to worship. They adopted a principle that said God speaks and the people respond. He speaks in his word. We respond with his word. And so the church had always sung psalms, but the Lutherans uh, went to writing hymns. 
and uh, that's where that's where American evangelical practice of, of hymn singing and choruses come out of all of that. Uh, the Reformed churches actually worked hard at translating the psalms into the language of the people and setting the psalms to meter so that we could sing the psalms. And by the way, we did it the way the ancient church did it. We did it without musical instruments. <laughs> the, the ancient church for the first 600 years uh, did not use musical instruments. People don't know that. In fact, for much longer than that, um, there was actually, I, I say 600 years because there, there's a point at which uh, one organ was approved in Spain, I think in the eight, middle of the eighth century. So we could even talk about 700 years. If, if you ask Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s, so 13th century, uh, Thomas says, we don't use musical instruments. That would be Judaizing. So musical instruments were far less common even in the middle medieval church than they are today. Now, there are medieval Christians. If you took Thomas Aquinas and set him down in a typical evangelical service, he would not have any idea what was going on. He'd want to know, he would think, particularly if you took him to a Pentecostal service or a charismatic service, he would want to know what kind of, of, of pagan orgy he was watching. I kid you not. He, he would absolutely, and the second century church would have no idea what's going on. Um, so, yeah, we, we, so we sang the word of God and we did it without instruments. Um, so I know that's a shock, and most people probably never heard that, but that's the case. And in fact, most of our Reformed or Presbyterian churches didn't use instruments through the whole 16th century, 17th century, and then the wheels began to fall off in the, in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And uh, now you have what you have, plexiglass, uh, drummers, electric guitars, organs, right? I'm, I'm death on all, personally now, just speaking for myself, I'm death on all those things. So I'm not trying to save one or the other. If you're going to have organs, then you, you can't say, well, we're, I don't want an organ. I, I don't want the guitars. I want an organ. And my response is an organ is just a band in a box. So <laughs> if, you, if you got a band in the box or you got a band out of the box, I, Calvin wouldn't put up with any of it. Mm -hmm. Well, we're, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to say one thing to see if I'm totally off. And obviously you would let me know if I am. <laughs> this assumption. <laughs> I think you would. You're, I'll try to be nice about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in as far as the Reformed Church today, in the purest sense, we could say that we're maybe more Catholic than Catholics and more Lutheran than Lutherans. Oh, it depends on what you mean by Catholic and Lutheran, I guess. Um, well, the original sense of who they ought. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I, okay. I, I do think the first thing you say that we're more Catholic lowercase c than the Romanists. I agree with that. Uh, so here's my slogan. Rome is a 16th century Italian sect. Okay. Right. So I never described the medieval church as the Roman Catholic church and certainly not the ancient church is not the Roman Catholic church. So uh, now, what about the Lutherans? Uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for the Lutheran tradition. I disagree. We disagree. We, the Reformed, disagree with the Lutherans on some really important things. They have very little respect for us. Uh, they think of us as traitors, uh, crypto-moralists. Um, they have lots of interesting adjectives for us. Yeah, well, uh, Lutherans are, are hotly critical of the Reformed and um, and. It is discouraging to read them describing us because it clearly, with a very few exceptions, they don't read us. And so they have 
caricatures, stories, uh, myths, even that they circulate among themselves. Um, and so we'll, um, so that's sometimes frustrating because in, in, there are ways in which we have more in common, important ways in which we have more in common than they think. But mm -hmm. you'll never persuade them of it because it's built into their institutional identity. Um, I, I, so there was a, 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 a one-time student and a, we were even in the same congregation and for a variety of reasons he became Lutheran and I said, look, it's, you know, God bless you, but here's what's going to happen in six months you'll you will ne you'll not talk to me anymore and uh, i and he said well that'll never happen mm. and you know like clockwork because i'm i am uh, they confess that we are liars mm. um, that's in their confession that we are liars and uh, so there's a lot of mistrust and it's ancient and it's probably you know irrevocable short of heaven uh, but i do think there it now I, I want to affirm part of what you're saying. I do think that we get aspects of Luther's doctrine of salvation that they have, I think, either neglected or left behind. So if you look at what the Lutherans confess in 1580 in the Book of Concord, it does not agree entirely with what Luther wrote in what he regarded as his most important book, and that is the bondage of the will or the bound will. And so Lutherans, by and large, don't read the bound will very, very often. And frankly, when they read it, they don't read it very well because it's very difficult to square what Luther says in 1525 or even in, in 1536 with what they were saying in 1580 relative to unconditional election, which they agree with us on un unconditional election. But Luther says things about reprobation. Luther doesn't know anything about resisting grace the way the Lutherans came to think about it. And um, when we, so in, in 1580, there was a meeting uh, in France uh, between the Reformed, led by Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, and some Lutheran theologians. And when they got to the topic of, of uh, salvation, um, election and grace and justification of the whole nine yards, Theodore Beza stood up with his copy, the Latin text of, of On the Bound Will and uh, De Servo Arbitrio, and he said, we stand with Luther. That was all he said. And the Lutherans essentially said, next point, <laughs> they didn't want to have that argument. I've had discussions with Lutherans who tell me, uh, Lutherans, if you, if you know anything about Lutheranism, if I said the last name, you, you'd know who it was, or it would mean something to you. And he said, look, we just don't read Bondage um, of the Will. It's just not part of, of, of our um, canon, I guess. It's like uh, the Book of Romans and Greek Orthodox, right? The Greek Orthodox don't read the Book of Romans because it has the word Romans in it, and they hate the West, and there's nothing more West than Rome. So it, they just don't do it, and it just, it just gets excluded from the canon, basically. So that happens, and there's probably ways in which that's true of us. I, I don't know where you know, somebody could maybe come back to us and say, well, you don't pay sufficient attention to this or that, so you know, mea culpa. But, but so on those points, I think, yeah, we, we could say that. And yeah, we, I, I really believe that we are trying to be as, as inclusive and universal Catholic in the best, truest, purest, old sense of the word. Mm -hmm. um, we went back and we read the early fathers and we said, you know, let's learn from the fathers. We also read the medievals and we said, you know what, we can learn from this medieval theologian and that medieval theologian. We didn't just burn the, you know, we didn't just close it, put, put them in a, in a basement and, and you know, lock the door. Uh, we've always tried to engage with the whole church. We've had ecumenical dialogues with faithful 
Greek Orthodox people uh, when they would do it. You know, we did that in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, we've had ecumenical discussions with all kinds of people, trying to be as broad and inclusive as we can be. But we do have our principles, and uh, and we and we are ashamed of standing on our principles. Mm. Yeah, I gotta imagine this is going to be huge for people who have not heard the history and, and why the Reformation is so crucial for Christians and thinking that's just a denomination, not the whole church versus seeing that that's how we got the church, at least the, um, the church that goes back to the Bible today versus kind of the yeah. evangelical flavor. But I think that'll be huge for people. The, the, the Reformation churches were not biblicist. They didn't say, I'm just going to read the Bible myself yeah. in the closet, or we're going to read the Bible together, you know, but we're going to read it as if no one's ever read it before. Because there are famous evangelicals who say, I read the Bible, or I preach, or I do theology. Lewis Sperry, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, famous dispensational theologian, uh, somebody pointed this out recently, said that I, you know, I do theology as if no one has ever done it before. I, or I, 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 I'm going to write my theology without consulting, you know, others and, 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 and uh, older theologians, because then it's going to be pure and it's going to be biblical. Well, no, it's a mess. Um, <laughs> You know, that's that's like saying, I'm going to drive a car as if no one's ever driven a car before. Um, no, that's a really bad idea. Yeah, pe people are going to get hurt. But people say that about the faith all the time. Yeah, that's, yeah, I know we have a lot of our listener base for those who either have never been to a Reformed church or aren't Christians at all. And so I think this is a, a strong introduction to the Reformed faith, to the Reformed history and and how we got to where we are now. Yeah. Well, really, thank you so much, Dr. Clark. That was uh, very edifying um, for all of us. You bet. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about the Reformation. It's good to, uh, good to see you guys. Yes. Yeah. Good to see all of us in person. I don't get to see Dr. Clark much on campus because of COVID, but we, uh, Nick and I hung out about a week ago. But yeah, right. I know, Nick, you just started going to Reformed Church a little while ago, and um, yeah, this is, this is a good conversation. How, how is it, and, and where is it, if I can ask, Nick? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm visiting a Reformed Church in San Clemente, Trinity. Oh, okay. That's great. Um, oh, uh, uh, the, the OPC. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, John Morsh. Yep. You're, that's a great place to be. Nice. Right, stick close to John. I've I've known John since he was a high schooler, and I know his family. Um, and he he was one of my students. He's uh, he is terrific. I um, I don't know how old I am until I see John and I see the gray in his hair. <laughs> yeah, but I can't. John is uh he he has gray also in his hair. He's he's very mature and knows the uh what he's doing, but he also has this energy to him. Yep. You're like, you kind of seem like a young guy too. He so is. I, it's, I don't he know is how great. he is. <laughs> yeah, st stick with John. He, John is gracious. He's every, you know, there, there are some, you know, Peter will understand what, what I mean when I say this. And he, you know, there are guys, there are grads that I think of, you know, these are the kinds <laughs> of, of guys we're trying to produce. John Morse is one of those guys. Right? I like just, that call out. So we we just got our uh, our new uh, uh, dean of students, Chuck Tedrick, right? And Chuck is one of those guys. When I, you know, if I could, the other day we were talking, and I thought if we could just, 
I'm against cloning, but if we could clone, there are some people <laughs> I would clone, and Chuck would be one of those. But John would be John would be on my list of people to clone. So, um, so yeah, that's a great place to be. I'll tell them uh, tomorrow. You said hi. I will. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Is there anything else? Any other resources? I know Heidelblog. You've talked about it. Um, your book covering the Reformed Confessions. We'll we'll post that up. But is there anything else that you wanted to add to this? Uh, you know, I, I hope the listener will um, you know, don't judge the Reformation by me. I can be a little uh, obstreperous and 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 uh, and cranky. Um, and when I, you know, when I get after American evangelicals, it's uh, it's because I I love them. Right? There are 60 million American evangelicals who really are completely disconnected from the Reformation in in most ways. And and uh, and I've seen what it does to people. And so when I get after the American evangelicals, it's 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 because I, I want them to embrace the Reformation. And, um, and so I really hope that the, that the listener will will um, understand the the spirit in which I offer the criticisms that I do, uh, because I come out of it, and I know what it's like, and um, and I, and I know and I and I deal with people on a on a pastoral level. So I have. Probably I don't I haven't looked right now, but I probably have three thousand emails in my inbox, and a lot of those are from people who listen to the Heidelcast, they listen to Office Hours, they read the Heidel blog, and they're looking for help, and they're in churches that where they never hear the gospel, they they don't use the Lord's Supper, right? They don't receive the Lord's Supper, um, and and th that breaks my heart. So that's why I say the things that I do because it doesn't have to be that way. Right, and uh, so there are real Reformation churches out there uh, for uh, for you to uh, to flee to. And then I want to say to the Reformation churches, you know, so when we call folks to leave their their you know the legal churches they're in, where the gospel just isn't present, there, please make sure that there's something for them to come to. Right, when they come, let them hear Christ, let them hear the gospel. Don't let it be more of the same that would be a tragedy uh, it's like calling people out of a burning house and then setting your house on fire just when they come in well that's stupid you, you call them out of a burning house you, you're supposed to be setting up a, a good safe place for them to come right so that's that's so that is why i'm saying the things that i say I, so i hope that helps clarify qualify condition some of the things that some of the criticisms that i make yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll link to the the Napark Church Finder, like we always do. Uh, Great. So people can get into a Reformed Church. So this this podcast is meant to point people to the Reformed Church, not just stay in the podcast. Yeah, amen. To, to bring them there, but that's I know that's great. what brought me. That's what brought Nick, and it brought my dad a little while ago. And um, I'm hoping more and more people hear this that's, and hear the good news. That's fantastic. All right. <laughs> the cowbell. You got the yeah. <laughs> You get the you get the Heidelcast here. Let me. I just it was too far away from the microphone here. I'll try it again. There we go. There, there we go. We got a little bit of the Heidelcast on here. There you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yep. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Doctor Cart. This has been edifying, and I, I hope people hear this and learn a little about history and and see the Reformed churches as as the church that they get the gospel at a consistent basis. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. God bless. All right. You too. Bye-bye.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reformed theological truth. Please subscribe to us on your podcast catcher, review us, give us five stars, help others find this podcast through your review. Find us on Instagram and Twitter if you want to follow us there. Keep up with our updates and who we're interviewing next and a couple quotes that you guys might find really enriching. We hope to see you guys next week.